Hi, and welcome to Common Law, a podcast from the University of Virginia School of Law. I'm Risa Golubuff, the dean. And I'm Leslie Kendrick, the vice dean. This is the third episode of our new podcast, and as we've mentioned before, we're devoting this season to the future of law. Today, we're here with a special tax season episode, and that's because, as you may or may not know, we happen to be at a turning point in tax law that could have big implications for the future. That's right, Leslie. And as we'll see, that turning point concerns international taxes that are, or as is often the case, not levied on big corporations. I'm talking about tech giants like Google, Facebook, and Apple, who recently have found creative ways to use international subsidiaries to maximize their profits by minimizing the taxes that they're required to pay. For a long time, this seems to have worked out fine, not only from their perspective of avoiding taxes, uh, but also for governments in the countries where those companies were doing business. There was something in it for them, too. But that happy arrangement started to change when, uh, about a decade ago, the financial crisis hit. Fast forward to this spring when representatives of countries from around the world have been meeting in Paris to try to work out a new and potentially fairer way of arranging international taxation. They're doing this under the auspices of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, which is composed of 37 member countries that include the United States. At the same time, some European countries have been making changes to their own tax laws to target big multinational companies. Many of which, of course, happen to be U.S. companies. That's right. So there's a lot in play here. And fortunately, we have a guest today who is extremely knowledgeable about these matters. Uh, She's on our faculty here at UVA Law, and she's here with us today to help us understand what's at stake. Ruth Mason is an expert in cross-border taxation and especially EU taxation, European Union taxation. At UVA, she teaches courses in international and comparative tax law, uh, and she's been following the OECD negotiations, and she recently published an article in Tax Notes co-authored with Leopoldo Parada on some of the tax proposals coming out of individual European nations. Ruth, thank you so much for being here. I'm happy to be here. Thanks. So let's begin with what's happening now. What are all these countries doing in Paris this spring other than enjoying Paris in the spring? Okay, so the countries go to Paris because that's where the OECD is. And and the good food. And the good food. <laughs> <laughs> and croissants. <laughs> and so representatives of the OECD member countries meet there to, we hope, uh, agree on how to modify the international tax system for a new century. So, you know, the, the, the international tax regime we're working with now originated in the 1920s. I'm not a historian, but I don't think you need to be one That's to a long know. Time ago. <laughs> right? Things have changed. The, the global economy has changed since the 1920s. In the 1920s, the, the rules they set up then made sense then. So, you know, the basic rule that's at issue now, is the rule that governs the taxation of business profits. So if you're a U.S. company and you have some kind of operation abroad, when does the other country get to tax? And the answer to that that was given in the 1920s was that the source country, the the country where the operations are, gets to tax, but only if there's nexus. What's nexus? Yeah, so nexus required physical presence which in 1920 made sense. And when you say physical presence, you mean in 1920 terms as a storefront, an actual operation, right. not not your products, but part of your business functions. Yes, yeah, so a sales agent, a factory, an office, some, some 
physical manifestation of your enterprise in that source state. Now we live in a digital world. Fast forward. (laughs) And you can have companies that are deeply integrated into the economies of states without having any physical presence there. Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon. Um, Apple has stores, right? But Google doesn't have any stores. Facebook doesn't have any stores. And so the nexus requirement being tied to physical presence just doesn't seem to fit the global economy anymore. So one question is, how can we change that? How can we change that nexus rule? Um, And I think there's pretty widespread agreement that that rule has to change. And then there's a second question, which is, suppose we change the rule. How do we attribute profits to the presence that's there? Yeah, I mean, what what are we defining as a presence now? If it's it's not the old rule, what is it that we're going to replace it with? So now that is an open question. We don't have an answer to that question, but it could be things like a certain amount of sales. Uh, Europeans are looking to Wayfair, which is a case decided by the U.S. Supreme Court last term. Yeah, so tell us tell us about that case. Europeans love Wayfair <laughs> because they take it to stand for the proposition that the U.S. Supreme Court is on board with the idea of taxing non-resident companies that lack a physical presence uh, in a particular state. So that's not actually an entirely accurate reading of the Wayfair case. The Wayfair case was about whether out-of-state companies that lacked a physical presence in a state could be required to collect sales taxes on behalf of the consumer. So the liable person for a sales tax is the consumer. Mm -hmm. But you can't. If the consumer, if, if Amazon doesn't collect the tax on a sale into a state, that tax just doesn't get collected at all. The consumer is not going to file a use tax return to report the tax that it owes on its Amazon purchase. Right. Um, so it's really important. So the regulators are dependent on the companies Complete. to collect those taxes. Completely. And Wayfair, Wayfair sells like furniture and stuff like that. Is that yes. right? It's yes. like an online sales outlet. And so the question was whether they had to collect this sort of state sales tax on its sales in right. places where they don't have a presence. And so the, the decision in Way- Wayfair is that it does not violate the Dormant Commerce Clause for a state to require an out-of-state seller to collect sales tax, at least given the particular features of this state's rule, which was that you had to have a certain amount of sales in the state. So, so these kinds of thresholds, you know, Europeans are looking at these thresholds as a potential uh, new nexus rule. So Europeans are looking at Wayfair as a model right. for how you can identify nexus in the absence of physical presence. Potentially. So before we get to that, how they might actually end up doing all this, let's take a step back and talk about how they got here. Can you talk to us about what motivated governments to sit down in Paris and finally try to take on corporate tax avoidance? So the immediate cause is the 2008 financial crisis. Um, But this controversy has been brewing for a long time. So before the crisis, basically countries' attitude towards corporate tax avoidance was one of indulgence. Mm. So 
the United States is a big residence country. Lots of corporate headquarters here. Lots of companies reside here. The U.S. attitude was, uh, it's okay if you defer your taxes. Um, and, and when yeah. you say defer, what, what do you, you mean? mean by that? Yeah, so so the U.S. Um, ostensibly has a tax rate at this time, a worldwide tax rate of 35%, which is a very high rate. It doesn't have that high rate anymore, but after, that the, 2017 time, after the 2017 tax reform, but in 2008, we had a 35% corporate tax rate, which is really high compared to our trading partners. And that tax applied to profits that were earned in the United States or profits earned abroad if they were remitted back, for example, to the parent company as a dividend, or if they were uh, certain kinds of passive income that were presently taxable in the United States. But active foreign source income has always been exempted. So sort of the first job of every corporate tax director was avoid the US. That was job number one. And so you would do this by shifting income from the United States to other countries. So take a concrete example. Suppose you're Apple. Apple would, would establish a subsidiary abroad and transfer to the subsidiary IP. And intellectual property. Intellectual property. And you know, intellectual property is, earns income. And if the intellectual property is outside the United States, then under U.S. law, so is the income, that active income, and it's deferred from U.S. tax until the subsidiary distributes in the form of dividends the profits up to the U.S. company. And Apple gets to decide when that happens and so thereby defer taxes as long as it wants. Indefinitely. So you had all these U.S. companies that were shifting their intellectual property offshore, thereby shifting their income offshore, typically into very low tax states. And so if you're a company like Apple, but this is typical, you would put the rights um, to your intellectual property that corresponded to the rest of the world in, say, an Irish incorporated company. So you would still... Uh, be liable in the U.S. for your U.S. sales. There's no way to avoid that. Um, but your sales for the rest of the world could at least be earned offshore in the first instance. You know, so that was job number one, get income out of the United States. Then the second pro, it's the second problem of the tax director. The second challenge is how do you get the income out of all the other relatively high tax states and into your lowest tax subsidiaries? So step one is shifting the intellectual property, shifting the profits abroad. Step two is base erosion. What's base erosion? So base erosion is suppose you sell an iPhone in Germany. Well, Germany's got a real tax rate. You'd like to avoid it. Um, so your, your income consists of the sales price that the final consumer paid for the phone. That's a fixed market price. You charge as much as you think the market will bear for that phone. That's fixed. So you work on the other end, your deductions. The higher your deductions, the higher your costs of goods sold, the less income you leave in Germany. So that's the base erosion. That's the base erosion. So your German subsidiary buys that phone from your Irish subsidiary. The cost of the phone you sold should be high 
for your German subsidiary, because that has the effect of shifting income into Ireland, which has lower taxes. But if you're Apple, you might think, well, Ireland's taxes are lower than Germany's taxes, and they're lower than the taxes in the United States, but it's still 12.5%. I still don't want to pay right. Ireland's taxes either. Right. Can we do better? <laughs> so what, what, what Apple did to do better than 12.5% was, remember, the U.S. tax residence rule is place of incorporation. The Irish tax residence rule is where are you managed and controlled. So Apple incorporated companies in Ireland, but managed and controlled them from the United States. Thereby not having tax liability in either country. Bingo. Well, that sounds like a loophole. <laughs> right. <laughs> stateless companies. And unlike stateless individuals, that's a good thing. Exactly. So... Apple figured out a way not to have to pay tax in either place, but it sounds like for a while everyone was more or less fine with that. Is that right? So, so some part of this could be they didn't know. Okay. That is, each country knew what tax it was collecting, but nobody had the global view. Every country's kind of looking out for its own tax system, its own taxpayers, but at the same time, there are many tax systems functioning at the same time. So motivated by crisis, countries start bringing in corporate executives to talk about tax planning, right? Because they're facing budgetary shortfalls. They're looking for more tax. And ordinary people are feeling the pain of the crisis. And so if they're going to get more tax, they want it to be from corporations. So the U.S. Senate investigates not only Apple, but several other companies. And the U.K. Public Accounts Committee investigated Amazon and Starbucks. And so you had all of these corporate executives being called before um, Parliament and before the Senate and being asked direct questions about their tax planning. So we have a clip of that. So let's listen. We're going to hear the CEO of Apple, Tim Cook, and he's being questioned by the late Senator John McCain. You'll hear them referring to AOI and AOE and ASI, and all of those are Apple subsidiaries. Can you please state for the record where AOI, ASI, and AOE is a tax residence? Uh Yes, sir. Is my, my understanding is there's not a tax residence for either, for any of the three subsidiaries that you just named. Does that sound logical? Well, as, again, as I look at it, the uh, ASI and AOE are paying Irish taxes. And so I, I'm not, I personally don't understand the, uh, the difference between a tax presence and a tax uh, residence. And, but I know that they fill out Irish taxes and pay those. AOI, because it's just a holding company, the interest, it, it only makes investment income. And all of that investment income is taxed in the United States at the full 35% level. When you look at that avoidance or relief of a 35% tax burden, which I'm sure that we're in agreement is way too high and now the highest in the world, I understand. But you said the purpose of AOI is to ease administrative burdens, but are there certain U.S. tax burdens? Aren't it, isn't 
isn't it obvious that you are not bearing the same tax burden as if you were bearing in the United States, which then gives you some advantage over corporations and companies which are smaller, which are strictly located in the United States of America. I'm not saying that's wrongdoing, but I think you would agree that it gives you a significant advantage. Uh, again, sir, I have tremendous respect for you. I, I see this differently than you do, I believe. So Tim Cook says he doesn't know the difference between presence and residence. What's the difference? Okay, so what Tim Cook seems to be talking about when he talks about tax presence is the idea that these Irish incorporated subsidiaries of Apple are paying tax to Ireland. But they're only paying tax to Ireland on their Irish source income. And on that, it's paying Ireland's 12.5% rate. So a company that's present in a state, that is, that meets its nexus threshold, has to pay tax but only on income associated with that nexus. In contrast, a tax resident company typically has to pay tax on all their income. So if you're these Irish incorporated Apple subsidiaries and you have 70 billion in profits, but you have only 25 million in Irish source profits, the question is, are you reporting 25 million or are you reporting 70 billion? So the difference between presence and residence turns out to be really, really big. Right. <laughs> Tens of billions of dollars. $69 billion, $75 million. Right. <laughs> so, you know, when Tim Cook says he doesn't know the difference between tax presence and tax residence, well, I can assure you his tax director does. So, you know, this answer that Tim Cook gives to Senator McCain is front page news. And... Perhaps more importantly, it sort of wakes up the European Union's sleeping giant. The Directorate General for Competition, DG Comp. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the competition authority in the European Union uh, has uh, enforcement power over their state aid rules, their anti-subsidy rules. And the commission brought an investigation, not against Apple, but against Ireland, arguing that Ireland allowed Apple to pay too little tax. That is, instead of letting Apple declare the $25 million, Ireland should have required Apple to declare the $70 billion. And the parties contest that. So uh, in the ultimate uh, result of that investigation was that the commission held that uh, Apple owes Ireland $14 billion in tax. And, th and that's, that case uh, is disputed by Apple and by Ireland, and it's working its way through the EU courts. What nobody disputed in that case was the legality of the statelessness of the Apple subs. Everybody so what agreed. Apple's doing was fine. Perfectly legal. And that, that's a problem, right? So Ireland, you see how it happens, right? Ireland has its rules. The U.S. has its rules. They don't coordinate. That creates a gap. Mm -hmm. And these kinds of gaps were all over the tax So Apple's law. not alone in taking advantage of these gaps. No. I mean, ap the Apple tax plan is brazen. <laughs> a little on the aggressive side. It's aggressive. But other companies were doing similar things. Mm -hmm. And so countries got together 
motivated by popular dissatisfaction, right? So these investigations happen in the Senate, they happen in the UK Public Accounts Committees, but then they're reported in every newspaper. So the the UK Parliament investigated Starbucks. British people protested Starbucks out on the streets for not paying enough tax. So corporate tax avoidance became an issue that voters cared about, especially in Europe. Politically salient, politically important issue. Right. So that meant that essentially politicians could no longer take this indulgent attitude towards corporate tax avoidance. Did they take the indulgent attitude because uh, they weren't pressed for funds and they weren't looking for that? And so that after the crash, when that changes and they're more pressed, they're looking for them? Or did they kind of think it's fine that the corporations don't pay. I mean, did, did they sort of wink, wink, nod, nod that this is an okay thing? I think it's a combination of things. So, so before the crisis, countries were content. So the U.S. attitude was, look, most of the tax avoidance is foreign tax avoidance, right? So when Tim Cook says that Apple's not avoiding U.S. tax, there's some truth to that. Apple's avoiding German tax by paying, making these base eroding payments into these Irish incorporated subsidiaries. So why should the U.S. care about that is one way of thinking about it, right? If, if foreign corporate tax avoidance makes U.S. companies more competitive and so U.S. shareholders benefit and their pension funds grow, what's the problem? All to the good, right. And then from the EU perspective... You know, Germany says, well, we've, we've, we've got investment. We've got productive factors here. We don't want to scare them away. A certain amount of base erosion is tolerable. And from an Irish perspective, we wouldn't have anything unless we were accommodating, facilitating this whole tax plan. So you have this problem of the gaps. The solution to the gaps was the G20 tasking the OECD, the world's best tax nerds, <laughs> with the job of finding the gaps and closing them. And there was a real commitment there to closing some of these gaps that just wasn't there before the crisis. And so the OECD mem- member countries set for themselves what seemed to be an impossibly short deadline to come up with proposals. And many people, maybe most tax people thought nothing would come of this base erosion and profit shifting project, this BEPS project. But uh, to everybody's surprise, the OECD met its deadlines and uh, made lots of recommendations, including some mandatory recommendations to uh, the OECD countries and the G20 countries and also what's called the Inclusive Framework, which is a group of over 100 countries that are on board with this idea of stopping BEPS. So basically, you have the whole world coming together at the same time to say this corporate tax avoidance is a problem and there are solutions that we can implement. So this is not a specific part of the BEPS project, but Ireland was pressured to change its tax residence rule. So now the Irish rule says you're tax resident where you're managed and controlled, but if you're incorporated in Ireland and you're not tax resident anywhere else, you're tax resident here. So basically you have the countries just being practical 
about, you know, what's what what's possible here? How can we make things better? How can we grow the revenue pie by closing the loopholes? And even though, you know, what you said before about U.S. corporations having more profits is a good thing for the U.S., you can see how growing the pie is good for most everyone. Right. right. Okay. So slicing, maybe there are going to be differences of opinion. So sli- slicing is more problematic because slicing is zero sum. Right. And so that's what countries are disputing about right now, as in this spring uh, in Paris. So what happens next? There's a question facing the countries, which is, suppose we agree that there should be a lower standard for nexus, some kind of non-physical nexus standard. How do you attribute the profits? And... um, One proposal is that this is a rule that should only apply to digital companies, social media companies, uh, companies that provide a marketplace. Think about Airbnb, a two-sided marketplace, and that the tax should be related to the users in the state. So your France or Germany, your residents log on to Facebook. They provide content to Facebook, and then Facebook monetizes that content by selling it to companies that buy ads. So Facebook's customers are the companies that buy the ads. They don't have to be in France. They don't have to be in Germany. They can be anywhere. And more importantly, the sale can take place anywhere. So as long as the sale takes place outside of France or outside of Germany, France and Germany don't have a way to tax the user's contribution to Facebook. The international tax system, as it's currently formulated, does not provide a way for France and Germany to tax profits based on user participation. But you could say maybe that's fine. So I'm trying to think of an analogy. And what I'm coming up with is newspapers that are like free weekly circulars where you have users who pick them up, they don't pay anything for them, their revenue comes from advertising, you know, they, people pay to put ads in the in the papers, and then they think that readers are going to respond to them. I don't think back in the day, we would have thought it was a problem that what's going to get taxed is the transaction with the with the advertisers. And we wouldn't say, oh, my gosh, you know, you should be paying tax based on the number of people who pick up your free newspaper, right? But now suddenly we feel like we should do that because of the power of all of these different companies or what? What's what's the impetus? Okay, so those are great questions. And, you know, Leslie, you said back in the day people wouldn't have thought that, you know, this newspaper should have been taxed. Well, in the present day, plenty of people think that Facebook ought not to be taxed on the basis of user contributions. And the way that the tax system, our international tax system is currently formulated, France doesn't get to tax that uh, user participation. We don't tax inputs into companies' production. So one You asked about the power of the companies. I think that's part of it, right? So these social media companies seem to wield a lot of power. They have a lot of influence over our lives, and we we now know our elections. Um, So so that might be part of it, sort of a, a, a disillusionment with social media companies and a lack of trust for them. But then there's also just this simple question of 
who gets the revenue? And there's this sense that users are providing real value and that their countries ought to be remunerated for that in some way. And so what they're going to decide, what countries are going to decide uh, in Paris or otherwise, if they can't agree in Paris, is should this kind of remuneration for the contributions of the user, should it be widespread or limited only to a narrow band of companies like these social media companies? So the U.S. position on this is that Yes, we should change the nexus rule. Yes, there should be some kind of uh, tax in the, in this case, user's state. But it shouldn't apply, this rule shouldn't apply only to social media companies. It should apply across the board. So France gets to collect tax from Facebook, but the U.S. should also get to collect tax from Gucci. That is marketing intangibles, trademarks, people's good feelings about brands exist in the states where the consumers or users are. And that's where they should be taxed. And that should be done across the board rather than just for particular kinds of companies, just for social media companies. So the scope of the project is something about which uh, the countries are debating. What are your views? I mean, where, you know, where do you come down on all these questions? I think that we have a unique opportunity to change the international tax system. I mean, it's looked like this since the 1920s. Now is the moment. Everybody agrees. Now is the moment for change. In my view, we should see this moment as the opportunity that it is. And we should formulate a rule that we think will be good indefinitely into the future. We For another 100 you know, years. We don't right? know when we're going to get to do this again. If right. we just talk about social media companies, we just talk about Facebook. You know, Facebook doesn't exist in 10 years. Uber's 10 years old. We do not know what the economy is going to look like uh, 10 years from now, much right. less 100 years from now. So the more generally we can formulate our response to this real problem, uh, the better, I think. And, then, and you know, the other, the other thing is you don't want to have sectoral discrimination, right? You don't want to have different taxes for one kind of company. Have other U.S. policies changed that have an impact here? I'm thinking, obviously, of the 2017 changes to the tax code. How does that all interact with these international rules? So the U.S. tax reform is a real game changer. You know, think what you will about the 2017 tax reform. The place where it really was a reform was international. Uh, so the most important for our discussion, the most important change that the U.S. implemented was uh, a minimum tax on U.S. companies' foreign source income. So now you can shift your income wherever you like abroad. But if you don't pay enough tax on that foreign source income, you're going to have to pay tax in the U.S., whether income is distributed back to your U.S. headquarters or not. So no longer a distribution requirement. This is a change from the kind of deferral practices that we had pre-2017, where countries, even though technically 
hypothetically, they had to pay taxes on their worldwide income. In practice, they could largely defer a lot of that liability. Exactly. So now what do they have to do? The upshot is if you don't pay a certain percentage abroad, just over 13%, you're going to have to pay the difference to the U.S. So that discourages some amount of foreign shifting, but it also means that the U.S. attitude is different when it goes to Paris. Now that U.S. companies are going to be taxed on their foreign activities, the U.S. has an interest in making sure other countries' companies are also taxed Mm -hmm. because the U.S. companies are going to compete in the same markets with these other countries' companies. So, you know, in BEPS 1.0, the U.S. only could lose, right? But now there's a sense that the U.S. might be able to benefit, too. So, you know, the U.S., of course, is a major resident state. It's the home of the world's largest companies. But the U.S. also has a huge, wealthy market. And so if more tax is going to be assigned to market jurisdictions, it's not obvious that the U.S. loses from that. Because we have so many consumers who spend so much money on companies that might be from other countries. Exactly. Okay. And, and then the other thing is that other countries may emulate the U.S. minimum tax. So, you know, when a, a large economy like the United States makes a major change like that, it has effects for everybody. So it's, it ripples out. So, and we'll see. This is all up in the air. We don't know exactly what's going to happen, but it may be that more countries go to this minimum tax model. And that would have the effect of neutralizing the tax havens. So it's so, another way of closing the gaps. Exactly. So domestically, this um, the, the operation of this new law, how is that working out or, or do we know yet? Because at the same time that this happens, the corporate tax rate uh, was greatly reduced, right? It's no longer 35%, it's 20%. And you're saying uh, now they have, to, they have to pay taxes, a minimum tax of 13% on profits worldwide, but the corporate tax rate has gone down domestically. And, you know, it's not clear to me how much of the 13 percent is actually coming home to the United States versus going other places. So on net, how is this working out domestically? Okay, so we have to see, right, is the short short answer. But the rates don't match. So the U.S. rate is 20 percent. And then the the minimum rate on the foreign source is only 13. So there's still an incentive to shift income out of the United Mm -hmm. States. But it's greatly reduced. Right. So it used to be. You could pay 35 or you could pay, you pay nothing. nothing. Right. right? <laughs> so One difference 13, 13 or closer and 20 together. is a lot closer. Yes. Right. So, but still far enough apart that one would think you'd still see incentives to continue not to pay the U.S. tax. Right. So the OECD countries are working this out right now, and they've been talking about this in Paris this spring. So what do you expect to see happen as they continue to hash this out? So we're at a major crossroads in international tax, and it's both exciting and scary. It's exciting because there are just lots of possibilities, and it's a great time for ideas, even radical ideas. Um, But at the same time, it's scary because if the countries don't agree, the international tax system that has been remarkably stable since the 1920s could unravel. Um, So I hope that countries will work together at the OECD because uniformity, consistency, and predictability are the paths to growth 
whereas protectionism, double taxation, unilateralism, uh, instability, uh, these all retard cross-border investment. But I still think that there's reason for optimism. Uh, the success of BEPS 1.0 built a lot of trust uh, among the people involved in making tax policy and uh, faith in our international organizations, particularly the OECD, to guide us through difficult decisions. So I think most people would say we're in a time of heightened populism and nationalism and protectionism. And it kind of sounds like what you're saying is that the impetus to act in those ways in the tax context might actually lead to consistency, predictability, uniformity in a positive way, um, which is different from the story that we hear when people are talking about democracy and rule of law, which is those impulses lead to a breakdown. Um, and what I hear you saying now is those impulses could lead to a breakdown. But a lot of what we've been talking about this hour is countries acting in their own self-interest in ways that are coordinated and actually productive and positive. So it seems like tax is a little bit in a unique position with regard to these, you know, really disheartening global trends that we're seeing. I think international tax has always been that way. Countries are always pursuing their own self-interest, which is to be expected. But because you can grow the pie, cooperation can lead to everyone being better off. Thank you so much for oh. joining us. We learned so much. My pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Thanks, Ruth. We've been talking with Ruth Mason, one of our colleagues at the University of Virginia School of Law. You can find links in our show notes to some of her writing on international taxation, including a paper she recently co-authored in the digital publication Tax Notes. So, Risa, every time I talk to a tax expert, I think tax is where all the action really is. This is what everything really comes down to. Who has to pay for what? How we're going to get them to do it? It's about distributive justice. It's about economics and incentives. Tax has something for everybody, whatever their perspective is. I couldn't agree more. When I was in law school, I went to ask for advice from a mentor about what classes I should take. And he said, if you really want to change the world, take tax. Uh, so yes, that is exactly, that is exactly my perspective. It's all the levers, right? It's all the gears and levers all and, in one place. And it's so amazing to talk to someone like Ruth, who has the capacity to keep all those gears and levers in her head all at the same time, not only domestically, but internationally as well. That's right. And to have the, the grasp on these uh, particularized issues, but also see how they relate back to that bigger picture, which is something that I really appreciate. These are big questions about how we try to uh, think about these large multinational corporations, how we think about social media, how we think about an information economy, and who has to internalize what in that economy. Exactly. And they also relate back to politics, right? Mm -hmm. So you see these are not only financial and economic decisions. They're also really political decisions. And they're, um, they're being swayed by politics and in very different ways than we see the politics operating in other realms, right? We talk a lot about the negative implications of a kind of populism that we're 
we're seeing today. And in the tax realm, it's really operating differently. And it's calling to account these governments to, to make sure that they call to account the multinational corporations. It was really interesting talking with Ruth. And one thing I came away from was was that, was that there might be this political dimension that actually is uh, creating incentives for a better tax system. So what was going on before was kind of good enough and everyone was getting something out of it. But it turned out that it was leaky in a variety of different ways. There were these mismatches and um, it wasn't necessarily optimized. And, you know, who knows where we'll wind up? I don't think anyone knows at this point. But there are conversations to try to make the pie bigger for everyone. And that could go someplace really interesting. Yeah, I agree. And I, I was also thinking, who is everyone, right? Mm-hmm. So it was working for the companies and maybe the governments, but clearly there were losers too, mm-hmm. you know, economic losers and political losers. And those folks are making their voices heard and people are listening. So that's it for this latest episode of Common Law. We hope you like what you're hearing so far. And if you do, we'd so appreciate your help spreading the word about it. Leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's a great way to get the podcast seen by others who might be interested. And if you're not already subscribed to the show, you can get yourself subscribed directly from our website, commonlawpodcast.com. You'll also find all of our past episodes there, as well as really cool show notes. And we're also on Twitter at commonlawuva. We'll be back in your podcast feed in two weeks with a new episode that will be of interest to all of you Game of Thrones fans out there, because not only is it tax season, it's the season for a new Game of Thrones season. Winter is coming. It is. It is. (laughs) Right here in the spring. So we'll be looking at the series through the lens of the law, and we promise that is more fun than it sounds. Here's a taste. I'm trying to remember, who was the prosecutor? in the Tyrion trial. It's it's sort of an inquisitorial model because it seems like the judges are also calling and questioning the witnesses. Wasn't it Tywin? Yeah, Tyrion's father. So there yeah. seems to be a recusal problem there. Yeah. <laughs> um... Common Law is a production of the University of Virginia School of Law. Our production team includes Mary Wood, Tyler Ambrose, and Tony Field. We record the show at the studios of Virginia Humanities. I'm Risa Galyubuff. And I'm Leslie Kendrick. Thanks for listening.